and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord God, we pray to you, you who are the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, you who are the Father of glory. We ask that you would give us your spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten them, so that we might know the hope that you have given us that we might know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we might know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might. And I ask this in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, congratulations. We all did it together. Through your effort and mine, we all saved daylight, and now we get to spend it. We saved daylight, now we get to spend it and enjoy it, even though maybe our sleep cycles were rocked and maybe your child was in your face this morning at what seemed like the wrong time, but was actually the right time. That was my experience this morning. Like, why are you here? We saved daylight, that's why. So, welcome. Thanks, thanks for being here. Spring break. Uh, we are still in the season of Lent. This is the fourth Sunday in Lent, and we are moving towards Holy Week. Um, and we're seeing the signs of life. Uh, the season of Lent corresponds for us with the season of spring. And we see this movement even in the world around us from death to life. And that's what Lent is about. And we have before us today this passage from the letter to the Ephesians. And I began um, by praying what Paul prays in the letter of the Ephesians. Uh, because we need that. We need that to understand what it is he's trying to say to us in these verses we have before us. And I prayed it also because that's the character of the letter. It's a, it's a letter that's characterized by praise and by prayer. It begins with worship. It says, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he enumerates all the things that God has done and accomplished in Jesus. And then he pauses to pray before he sets off again and telling us all the things that God has done and accomplished in Jesus. And then he pauses to pray Again, because he realizes that these are not things that we would come to on our own. They're not conclusions that we could draw ourselves. Because as he says throughout the letter, what he's talking about is a mystery. A mystery that has been revealed to us in the fullness of time. And I think it's important to start there because the way these verses start off, I think, make us uncomfortable. 
you were dead. No, I'm not. (laughs) What are you talking about, Paul? And then he goes on. He talks about wrath and children of disobedience and the prince of the power of the air. All sorts of things that even if we believe them, don't make us really feel that comfortable. Don't make us feel really good about ourselves. There's a temptation to skip these first three verses, to pretend like they're not there and just get to the, the part about grace and the good part. But we can't skip these verses because what Paul is trying to do, as John Stott says in his commentary on Ephesians, he's trying to draw a vivid contrast, a vivid contrast between what we are by nature and what we can become by grace. The vivid contrast between what we are by nature and what we can become by grace. That's what these 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 2 are all about. So we're going to use that image of contrast to look at these verses. And we're going to talk about verses 1 through 3, even though they might make us uncomfortable, even though they might even on some level offend us, the things that Paul has to say about who we are without God. Because we read these verses and we think maybe, surely things aren't as bad as Paul says. Surely he's exaggerating, but he isn't. He's describing precisely what we are called to renounce, what we are called to repudiate in our baptismal vows. Every time we have a baptism here, part of our liturgy is that we all stand together as the baptized and we renew our baptismal vow. And in that baptismal vow, we renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those aren't the precise terms that Paul uses here, but those three ideas are present in these three verses the world, the flesh, and the devil. Devil, And what he's talking about in these three verses is the nature of tragedy that emerges when the world and the flesh and the devil get together and do their thing. That there's a trajectory that that all leads to, and that trajectory is tragic. See, in Paul's view of things, because he has seen the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus because he has encountered the reality that God can bring life from death. He knows that the end of the story can break into the middle. And what he's saying in verses one through three is not that there aren't good things in the world and not that we're not made in the image of God and not that creation isn't good, but the trajectory of all of that without God, the end of that story is tragedy. So what, what does he mean? What, what does he mean when he says you, we were dead? We were dead, he says, in the trespasses and said, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we also lived in the passions of our flesh. In those phrases, we have the world, the flesh, the devil. What does he mean when he says we follow the course of this world? Literally, what Paul is saying in the language behind here is the age of this world or the eon of this world. So we live in the present evil age, as he says uh, in Galatians. What does he mean by the world? He means the systems and structures that are not in line with the way that God made things. He's not talking about creation itself. He's not talking about the good things that God called forth and said, let there be light. He's talking about that which is opposed to God. And that's the age of this world. And and I love that phrase, the age of this world, because we all live in an age when we live in a particular age, some people call the age we live in the secular age or the post-Christian age or post-modern age. Everybody wants to name this age that we live in, but it's marked by certain characteristics. 
to live in the United States of America in this moment has particular uh, consequences. We're drawn to particular things. And he says that there's a course, the course of the world. There's a way of walking in this world. So that's the world. And then there's the flesh, which is who we are in our disposition apart from God. Just as the world apart from God is um, not walking in the ways of God, so our flesh, our passions and desires apart from God are turned away from him. And then there's the prince of the power of the air, which is like a heavy metal album waiting to happen. The prince of the power of the air. Um, If you make that album, just send it to me. I'd love to hear it. Um, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience, also a great name for a metal band. Um, Or children of wrath, too. Um, It's all right here. Apocalyptic Swedish death metal. Um, The prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Um, And it's this idea he has... Paul's talking about the powers and the principalities. What rules over the world as it is? And these three things collude together. Maybe of the three on the list, that's the hardest one to believe in. The prince of the power of the air. Maybe we, we can look at the world and see that it's broken. Maybe we can look at ourselves and see we're not exactly everything that we should be. But the idea that there's a, a malevolent face to evil Uh, that there's a spirit at work, that's a little bit harder. It is hard. But if we believe that goodness has a face and is a person, uh, why is it so hard to believe that evil has a face and person? Um, Certainly the devil has been used to be blamed for all sorts of things. Um, An excuse And it's not just the devil working on his own. It's the prince of the power of the air working alongside of the course of the world, working along with the flesh. It's the collusion of all three of those things that create this tragedy of death that we're all moving towards apart from God's intervention. As one commentator put it about the prince of the power of the air, this is one who aims to orient human life toward idolatry, toward oppression, and toward destruction. That only works if we can actually be tempted in that way. If there's only, if there's something, that only works if there's something broken about us. That only works if there's something broken about the world that we live in. And what happens when these three things collude is all the terrible stuff that we see around us. And this is what John Stott says about that. Whenever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, being oppressed by an outlook that is secular, amoral, or materialistic, when they're dehumanized by poverty, hunger, unemployment, racial discrimination, or any form of injustice, then we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. See, the prince of the power of the air, his aim is to dehumanize us, to walk in a way that makes us less human. And that is tragic. It's tragic because we are created in the image and likeness of God in a good creation that God gifted to us. And if God had not acted, that would be the end of the story. That would just, everything would be tragic. And that's what we'd be moving towards. And maybe you've seen a, a a play that's called a tragedy before. And even within one of those kinds of plays, even within a Shakespearean tragedy, there's moments of lightness and levity. There's moments of comedy 
there's even maybe tender connection between characters, real love, but the end of the story is that everybody's dead on the stage, right? That's kind of what Paul is talking about. It's not that there aren't good things that might happen along the way to people. It's not that people can't act in kindness or be good. It's that it's all moving towards tragedy. In the dramatic mode, the opposite of tragedy is what? Comedy. We don't think of comedy in these terms, but comedy is when the story turns out well. It's the Shakespearean plays where the characters get married at the end instead of dying on the stage. And even with one of those plays, bad things might happen along the way. People are betrayed, there's confusions, there's misunderstandings. People might even die, but in the end it all adds up. It turns out well. How can the tragedy of human existence that moved towards death become a happy ending? How can it become a comedy? Verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy. The decisive player in these verses is God. God is the one doing the work, doing the action. He's the one raising us up with Christ. He's the one seating us with Christ. He's the one who is acting decisively in his son to bring us back to him, changing the story from a tragedy to a comedy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, precisely when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He can't even get through his sentence without talking about grace. He interrupts himself. By grace, you have been saved. Let me just put it in there. By grace, you have been saved. And you've been raised up with him and seated up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, just as in the first three verses, Paul is talking about that tragic end of the story breaking into the middle. Here he's talking about the happy end, the resurrected end of the story breaking into the middle. He's not saying one day you will be seated with Christ. He's saying even now you have been raised up and you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And as he talks about in chapter one, that's where Jesus is ruling and reigning far above the powers and the principalities, far above the prince the power of the air, far above these things that we get entangled in, the collusion of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he's saying that's where we are now. The reality that we're living in now is that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And because we are in Christ, death can become life. And because we are in Christ, poverty can become riches. And because we are in Christ, tragedy can become comedy. So it is in Christ that God shares his riches with us. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit as being given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. So we are given the Spirit of God as a guarantee of our inheritance. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he says that we need to have our eyes open so that we can see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That we've been given something amazing that we've been given an inheritance of the sons and daughters of God. And then in that beautiful prayer in chapter 3, he says, we've been given the riches of his glory. And he gives us a picture of Christ as the ascended Lord who's, a victor- who's victorious, who in his death, burial, and resurrection has defeated the powers. And like a king who has conquered a vanquished enemy and takes back the spoils of war, and he gives them to his people. Jesus ascends on high and he says he ascends and he gives gifts 
to men. He gives us his riches. And that, those riches are based in his gracious disposition towards us. So the question is, what does this grace result in? What do these riches afford us? And that's where Paul ends in these verses. He says, you're saved by grace, saved through faith, and that we didn't do this, it's a gift. It's not the result of works. And yet, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are created for good works. And what does he say? He says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The contrast in this passage, the vivid contrast is between what we are by nature and what we can become by grace. It's a vivid contrast between tragedy and comedy. It's a vivid contrast between, what does he say, walking in the course of this world, just going with the flow, or walking in the good works prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Paul is a Jewish man, and this image of walking is is very big in, in the Old Testament. It's a way of describing your philosophy of life. It's a way of describing your disposition. It's a way of describing the way that you live. The way that you walk is the way that you live, and the way that you walk is where you're going. It's kind of obvious, right? Where you walk is where you end up. So if you walk in this tragic way, you're going to end up with a tragic end. But if you walk in the way of resurrection, you will end up in that place of riches, that place of glorious grace. What does Paul say about what it'll look like once we are fully in Christ? In the coming ages, he says, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Even into eternity, it'll still be about his grace, the immeasurable riches of his grace. So we are saved by grace, we are moving towards grace, and now we are walking in good works towards that time. So Paul has a lot to say about walking in the book of Ephesians. And I want us to think together about this idea of walking. Walking in the course of the world or walking in the good works prepared beforehand. He has, there are two uh, sections in Ephesians where Paul talks about the negative effects of walking. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked. But in chapter 4, he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. See, Paul is drawing us our attention to the reality of our lives is that there is a, still a temptation to go back to the course of the world, to go back to the flesh, to go back to the world, to go back to the prince of the power of the air. So he urges us in chapter 4. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What is a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Well, the first question is, what is the calling to which you've been called? And that's all that Paul's been talking about. What, what God has accomplished in Jesus, in giving him to the world, in offering him up as a sacrifice, in raising him up, in, pull, in ascending 
to the right hand of the Father. That's what we've been called to. We have to walk in a manner worthy of that. Empowered by the Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance, and saturated with the grace by which we have been saved. And this is one that we hear every week, and you may not know that it's from the book of Ephesians. But before communion, we say it every week. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Jesus' pattern of life becomes our pattern of life. Once we are in Christ, we can live as Christ. We can walk in those good works. We can live self-sacrificial lives. There's nothing more opposed to the world, the flesh, and the devil than self-giving love. That is the exact opposite of that system of oppression and destruction. Walk in love as Christ loved us. He goes on to say, to implore us to walk as children of light. And he concludes his meditation on walking by saying, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we can walk in the course of the world towards the tragic end, or we can walk in the good works prepared in advance for us by God, because we are his workmanship. That's what we are intended for. I quoted uh, John Stott a couple times in this um, sermon, whatever this is, <laughs> talk calmly. Um, I quoted him because he's great on Ephesians, but I also quoted him because I think he's an, a great example of what it is I'm talking about. Um, if you don't know who John Stott was, he was one of the most prominent Anglican voices in the 20th century. Um, kind of like an Anglican Billy Graham, if there's such a thing as that, in terms of the amount of people that he talked to. And his writings have been massively influential. Um, but he pulled together a, a group of people, and they, they, he created this covenant called the Lucane Covenant. And at the center of it, I think, is this, this reality of Ephesians, preaching the gospel according to Ephesians, which is that you are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man but boast, but you are also created beforehand for good works. So in the covenant itself, he talks about what it is to go and preach the gospel to the nations, to declare the good news in Christ, that there is life and not death, that there is comedy and not tragedy, but also that that should affect the world in particular ways. That part of what it means to be a Christian is to work in a positive way to whatever end we can to undo the effects of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think John Stott lived that way. Uh, I think he was an exemplar of that. Um, and maybe his Anglicanism was connected to that, or maybe he did that despite his Anglicanism, depending on how you want to look at it. But I think we need those models. You know, when we think about walking in a particular way, you kind of have to see someone do it, maybe. Um, Jesus talks about walking. Take up your cross and follow me. What does it mean to be a disciple except to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? And the testimony of the church throughout the ages is that there have been people who have walked in this manner of life, that they have walked in love, that they have walked as children of light, that they have walked with wisdom. And I think we all have to find those people that resonate with us, that, that 
I, you look at them and, and say, they're walking in this manner. They're walking in a manner worthy of the calling. Not that they're perfect, not that they don't mess up, but they're, that you need people around you. Um, and yeah, some of that's Christian biography and church history, but it's also, we've got to have those relationships too, because we we're all walking together. And if somebody steps off, we need to be able to pull them back, not in a violent way, not in a shameful way, not in a condemning way, but to say, no, this is, we're going this way. This is where life is. Come with us. Come join with us. And for me, John Stott is one of those people. So I would encourage you to think in your own life, who, who are those people that are walking in this manner? Um, where are those relationships? Uh, maybe they're in, within this church body itself. Maybe they're someone at work. But it's a question worth asking because we can't do it alone. And even discerning what those good works that were prepared for us in advance, we need each other to help figure that out. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians that God gave to the church prophets and evangelists and prophets and pastor teachers so that they might equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So that's part of my job and that's part of Jay's job, right, is to help you guys discern what the good works are that God prepared in advance for you to do. So if you have questions about that, we'd love to have coffee. I know Jay would. I would, to talk about that, to talk about that in community. So take us up on that. I want to close by praying over us this prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. Um, I hope you can tell that Ephesians is pretty exciting to me. I, lo- I love Ephesians. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had to preach Romans, and I was thinking about it. Romans was like the Pauline letter from my 20s, and Ephesians is becoming the Pauline letter from my third. It's just something I go back to over and over and over again. It's so life-giving to me. So thank you for indulging me and letting me talk about Swedish death metal um, and grace. So there you go. Bill, if you need a title for the sermon, Swedish death metal and grace. Let's bow our hearts together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you have been filled with all the fullness of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.